Well, good morning. Good morning. Another beautiful day, and uh, we're back in the book of Mark, chapter 6, starting in verse 45 this morning. Um, There were a group of you that came out yesterday to help beautify our grounds. Thanks for those of you who who did that. I know there are all sorts of of work that happened around the property here, and um, you you probably couldn't tell because of the rain this morning, but as of yesterday afternoon, it looked beautiful. So, So thank you. Uh, this morning, um, you can find information on this message at the Uversion app if you want to go back there, and, and the five points of my sermon are all on there, so I encourage you to go to that if that's helpful. Well, this morning, if you have come here frustrated, brokenhearted, confused, run down, I just want to start out by saying you're in the right place. You're in the right place. I believe this morning will be an encouraging morning to you. I believe that Jesus will reveal his love to us in the scripture we're going to go through in a very practical and powerful way. I think we will see that we are not alone. We'll be reminded of that again. And um, I just wanted to, to throw it out and let you know that we're going to close our service by having a time of prayer at the end. And, and I didn't want that to be a surprise to you. But, but God is here this morning and he's wanting to connect with us. I was raised in a very religious home um, with a strong Catholic heritage. Uh, I knew all about growing up, all about the death of Jesus, and I knew a few of the Old Testament stories. But, but in the midst of that, I really wasn't drawn to Jesus at all. And I've, told, I've shared part of that story with you before. And, and oftentimes, uh, I wouldn't even interact with God unless I got myself in trouble and needed, needed somebody to bail me out. I went to, um, to Mass, or Catholic Church, every day before school from first grade through sixth grade, and then once on weekends. And so that's six church services a week. And um, sometime I'll tell you the story, but I was beat by nuns three times and, um, for things that I thought were pretty trivial. Um, obviously, she didn't. Um, but this all led me to really despising the whole church thing. I really struggled with God, and I wanted nothing to do with God, even to the point that when we had our version of catechism classes, I wrote cheat notes because I just I didn't want to spend any time wasting my time studying this stuff. And so you can see that you can get a little flavor of, of my heart in, in my early days when I was growing up. I was running the other way as much as possible, and that's when, uh, when I came to early high school and my friend in ninth grade was walking to my house and was hit by a drunk driver and was killed. And I've shared parts of that story too. And, and that time forced me to deal with some hard questions. It forced me to, to recognize that, that life was fragile and that my friend who was here one day, the next day, is gone. And, and I wrestled with questions like, is this all there is to life? When it ends, you get put in a box, and you get lowered into the ground, and over time, you're, you're forgotten. And that's, that, that all set up a lot of questions that God used to bring me to him uh, in high school. God, God set me up to wrestle with the world that I came from, which was a very religious world, and brought me into a place where I actually needed a relationship with the living, with the living God. It wasn't enough just to know about Jesus. I wanted to know Jesus. I had heard all about Jesus, and I had experienced religion, 
but I wanted Jesus. When I made that decision to make Jesus my Lord and Savior, it's because I wanted to interact with the God of the universe. And so I started to do the things that, that you do to get close to God. I, uh, I read his word, the Bible. I started to read the Bible. I went to Bible studies with others who, who were stronger in their faith than me. I, uh, I started to, to talk to God a lot, to interact with God, to pray. I listened to music from artists who, who wrote songs about their love for God. And so I didn't, I didn't just grow in my knowledge of God. I grew in my relationship to Jesus. And one of the things that, that I loved to do as a young guy was I loved to go to these places that seemed holy to me. One of the holy places that I loved was at night, out in, in God's beauty and looking up and seeing the stars. There was just something about that that helped me connect to God. And so I loved going out at night and, and um, being in the, in the wilderness, as much as you can find the wilderness in the state of Indiana, uh, and just talking to the Lord. There was something special about that, and I recognized it. Another thing that I did, and, and I probably shouldn't talk about this a lot, but uh, I loved to go to churches at night and find doors that were unlocked and go into the dark sanctuary and pray. Pretty much every church has a door that's left unlocked. You just need to work hard enough and you can find it. And I especially loved to do it with my guitar and with a group of other friends, young guys like me who were dumb and bold enough just to, to find the open door and to go into the dark sanctuary and sing our hearts out to Jesus in this dark room. There was something holy about that, and we did it often. And it really was, it was uh, something that, that I look back on and, and, um, and just chuckle. But those were holy, holy minutes to me, or holy moments to me. I had tasted empty religious activities in, in my early years, and what I wanted and longed for was a thriving relationship with Jesus. I had a clear understanding that I was stepping into a relationship with Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And eventually, as I've shared previously with you, uh, after graduating from college and working for several years, I left my career to move into full-time ministry. And this is where I have to be honest with with you. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me as I began to interact in the church world in a a more full-time way I thought that as I began to interact with church people in churches who taught, taught godly truths, that I would see many, many people who were close to Jesus. And for sure, I have met many people who, who are close to Jesus. But here's, here's what shocked me. I met many people who go to church but don't really have a strong relationship with Jesus. I've observed that in this church world, the same problem that I struggled with as a young man is the same problem that that I see happening in in our church world, and it breaks my heart. There are a lot of people who are religious. They go through the motions of doing what church people do, but they spend little time actually interacting with Jesus, their Lord. And I'm most concerned with our young people. They know all about Jesus, but many rarely spend time in their relationship 
with Jesus. I see little discipline in their lives, um, in them actually talking to Jesus, seeking Jesus, uh, asking the Lord for direction in their lives, reading God's word, uh, and, and it breaks my heart and it concerns me deeply. There's a lot of talk about young people walking away from their faith. But I'm beginning to wonder if they're really walking away from their faith or if they're just walking away from an empty religious godless activity. They're bored with the Lord. Or at least they're bored with what they perceive it means to be a Christ follower. This is the most discouraging thing that I see from from the viewpoint of now working inside the church as, a, as a, a minister, helping, trying to help people fall in love with Jesus. So as we get into our text this morning, I want to ask you a profound question. I just want to throw it out there and, and, just, and just ask it. Are you a religious person or do you have a thriving relationship with Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? This morning in our text, Jesus is going to push us to something bigger than an acknowledgement of who he is. He loves us too much just to leave us there. And so we're going to start in Mark 6.45, and I want to just pull together where John Richardson took us last week. So in, in John's message last week, Jesus multiplied the fish the fishes and the loaves, um, to these thousands and thousands of people. It was, it was this miraculous miracle. And, and in the midst of that, this morning's scripture, this morning's text, begins to unfold what, what happened next. But John doesn't give us the whole story, so I want to just take us to, to John, or Mark. Mark doesn't give us the whole story, and I want to take us to what John said in his gospel in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and I don't have it on the slide, but you can listen to what John said about this crowd that had just had this miraculous thing happen where the fishes and loaves were multiplied. Here's what John says. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And John tells us that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain to pray by himself. So that's the context here. This crowd is, is intending to push Jesus to be a king. So let's get started this morning, Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and let's work our way through, through these, these verses. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. I have five points this morning that I want us to to think about. And the first is this. Obedience to Jesus doesn't mean that things will be easy. Obedience to Jesus doesn't mean that things will be easy. Jesus takes control of this politically charged situation And he makes the disciples get in a boat, and he tells them to go to a town across the lake, Bethsaida. And Jesus gives them an express command to obey, to get in this boat, and to go on ahead. In the original language, there's a tenor of of Jesus 
pushing very hard at these disciples. It's like he's saying, get in the boat right now and get out of here. That's the tenor of the, the original language. And imagine their disciples' thoughts, all right? They're in the middle of, of nowhere, and, and can you imagine what they were thinking? What, what do you mean, Jesus? We, we've left everything to follow you. Why are you sending us across the lake now? And do you know, Jesus, that there's kind of some wind blowing up, and it doesn't look so good over there on the other side of the lake, and it's about ready to get dark. We don't really understand what's going on. And, and Jesus, when are you going to join us, and what are you going to do here? And Jesus, what are we supposed to do when we get there? We, we, you're it now, Lord. We're following you. It doesn't seem to add up to them. You can imagine and, and again, the original language gets a flavor, gives a flavor that the disciples were pushing back a little on Jesus. Like, no, we, we're not real comfortable with that. But Jesus gives this command, and they obey, and they get in the boat, and, uh, and it will lead to another stormy night on, on the lake. And this time, though, they're by themselves. Jesus isn't with them. So, point one, obedience to Jesus doesn't mean things will be easy. And after the disciples leave... We're told that Jesus is alone and he dismisses the crowd. It would have been interesting to see how he, how he did that. Let's continue on in verses 46 through the first part of, of verse 48. And after leaving them, he, Jesus, went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he, he Jesus, was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. My second point this morning is this. In the midst of struggle, Jesus sees and prays. In the midst of struggle, Jesus sees and prays. So after Jesus dismisses the crowd, he heads up on this mountainside to pray. And Mark gives him a clear articulation. That's why he's going up there. He's going up there to talk to his father. And we're told that when the evening came, and in this context, the evening would have been between 6 and 9 p.m., when, this evening, when the evening came, there are some different things that are happening. Number one, uh, the boat with the disciples in it is now in the middle of the lake. Two, Jesus is on the mountainside alone. Three, these disciples who are on, in the middle of the lake are actually straining at the oars because the wind is against them. And four, we know from the context that Jesus is, is spending this time in prayer. And we're told that this straining at the oars um, is, is something that, that uh, again, I'm not sure the English captures exactly what's going on, but, but they are struggling mightily to make progress in, against this wind as, they are, um, as they're working their way to try to get across the lake. And it's just interesting to think that Jesus sees them and he is praying. Mark only records three times that Jesus actually prays. And in each of those times, there's a significant time in, in Jesus' life. The first time was when Jesus just started his ministry and when he's, um, his ministry is being defined. The second time is right here in this situation where the, multi, the loaves have been multiplied and, and Jesus sends his disciples away and the crowds he also sends away. And the third time is when the night that Jesus uh, is in Gethsemane right before he's crucified. 
And it's interesting that, that anytime Jesus seems to face a critical moment, he heads off to pray, mostly in private and each time at night. And each time there are overtones of this spiritual conflict, some warfare going on, big picture stuff in the spiritual realms. The stakes are high, and each time Jesus goes to the Father in prayer. And also in each of these times it's mentioned, the disciples are removed from Jesus, and they are failing to really understand the big picture of his mission, which may be why Jesus had to send them away this time as the crowds are are in this frenzied pitch to make Jesus the king. And no doubt, Jesus must have prayed for himself. He must have prayed for the crowd. He must have prayed for his disciples who needed, who needed his prayer and his authority for what was coming in the future. And back to John's version of the event. In John's version of the event, we're told that there's a very, very strong wind that stirred up the waves. And the waves are big. And these guys are fighting this, this windy, wavy, dark night in their boat. And Mark tells us that Jesus is on the mountain and he sees the disciples. He sees them straining at the oars. And that word straining could actually be translated torment. They're tormented by the wind and the waves that they are battling. So the second point in the middle of Jesus's or in the middle of people's struggle, Jesus sees and prays. Let's continue on uh, the second half of verse 48, 48 through the first part of verse 50. About the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, went out to them walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. He was about to pass by them. My third point this morning is this. Jesus comes close in the midst of storms. Jesus comes close in the midst of storms. Imagine what their emotions must have been by the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's been a long night. How would you feel if you had obeyed Jesus before dark and at 3 or 4 a.m. you're still out there, nowhere close to your destination, rowing against this strong, windy, wavy, tough night? They weren't even close to the other side. And remember from the setup from John's message last week, this all led trying to get them away to have a time of retreat with the Lord, a time away, a time of rest. If they had started rowing, I'm guessing 4 or 5 p.m., and they're still rowing at 3 or 4 a.m., they had been rowing for 11 to 12 hours. That's a lot of rowing. That's not a fun night together. They must have been tired, they must have been irritated, they must have been confused as where they're going. Remember, there are no electric lights on the shore. It's dark. And they must have been somewhat agitated at Jesus, even though he wasn't there. And then Jesus walking several miles on the water in this dark blackness of night makes his way to the disciples. He knows exactly where they are, and he knows exactly what they're going through. And then we come to this phrase, which is really the pinnacle, I think, of this whole section of Scripture, and it's going to take a little unpacking to get to, get to what's going on here. The phrase is, he was about to pass by them. 
Jesus was about to pass by them. Like Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus comes to deliver his people in need. And this time his deliverance is in the form of a self-revelation to his disciples. He's not intending to walk by them as might be thought from a casual reading of, of this section. But Jesus is actually attempting to reveal his identity to his disciples. Think back uh, of several different situations that happened in the Old Testament where God passed by some key leaders. In Exodus 32, 33, and 34, we find the transcendent Lord passing by Moses. Moses had asked to see God's glory, and the Lord passed by in order to reveal his name and his compassion to Moses and ultimately to the people. It was a theophany, an appearance, and a manifestation of God himself to Moses. And then in 1 Kings 19, there's a similar situation with Elijah. And in that situation, God passes by Elijah, another theophany of the appearance and manifestation of the one true God. And in the same way that the Lord passed by Moses, and then, and then he passes by at Mount Horeb, um, Elijah, in that same way, the God of the Old Testament, who now is Jesus the Messiah, wants to pass by his disciples so that they may see his glory and believe. Remember, he's walking on water. And it's not a flat tabletop glass kind of water. There are waves and wind, and Jesus is just walking his way toward them. Only God can walk on water. The God of Israel, majestic but unknowable face to face, is now passing by the believers in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus walking on the water water is a revelation to these guys. It's a revelation of his glory and his compassion. It's a divine epiphany of his true identity, the Messiah, the Son of God. And the reaction of the disciples parallels the last time they were in the boat where Jesus is asleep on, on, uh, on the lake in the middle of the storm. Once again, they misperceive, they misconstrue what's going on. They cry out in terror, thinking that Jesus is a ghost. The one who is the epiphany of the true God is mistaken for a ghost. And Mark tells us they see this ghostly figure and they're terrified. Jesus intended to pass by to assure them, to assure these disciples, that in the person of Jesus was God present with them in this windstorm. The disciples don't understand. They have eyes, but they don't see. God is in their midst, but their hearts quickly go to a dark place. My fourth point is that Jesus gives fear directions, and Jesus reveals his identity. Let's look at the second half of verse 50 and go to verse 52, and, and we'll, we'll work our way through this, this too. Immediately, he spoke to them. Jesus speaks to them, and he says, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. 
Jesus gives directions and Jesus reveals his identity. These guys, they don't, they don't recognize what's going on here. So Jesus, seeking to calm their terror, speaks to them three different things, three key things. He starts out by telling them to take courage, take courage. They have been in the place of obedience. They're right where Jesus told them to be. And now Jesus is with them. He doesn't chastise them for their misunderstanding or their ignorance. He tells them to grab courage. Take courage, guys. He's gently encouraging them. He's not discouraging them. He's pouring into them. Then to calm their fears, Jesus speaks the words that we translate, it is I. In Greek, what, what you would read are these two words, ego, I, me. Ego, I, me. And there's a lot more going on here than it is I. And so I want to try to, to highlight some of that. Say it with me. Ego, I, me. Ego, I, me. The disciples take this phrase, ego, I, me, as Jesus saying, take courage, it is I. Ego, I, me. And those are comforting words to the disciples because it assures them that Jesus, their friend, is with them there out in the water. That he's not a ghost. But that's not how Jesus wanted them to take these words. Ego, I, me. If the disciples would have had ears to hear, they would have also heard the complete translation of ego, I, me. And here it is. And see if this doesn't ring a bell. I am, in all caps. I am. I am. It's the translation of Yahweh in capitalization, the name of God. It is I is a correct translation of ego, ego, I, me, but it's not a complete translation um, of the phrase. It doesn't include or indicate the deeper meaning that Jesus hopes they will understand. I am, in all caps, it's the name of God used in Exodus 33 that I referenced earlier, where God reveals himself, Yahweh, to Moses. And here, in the Greek here, it's just translated, ego, I, me. These are also the words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus is proclaiming himself to these guys that he is the great I am who led the Hebrews out of slavery from the Egyptians. Jesus not only walks where God walks, but he hears the very, but he bears the very name of God. I am, ego, I me. If the disciples would have understood this, they would have experienced God as Moses had experienced God. They would have recognized the very presence of the one true God there in their midst. They would know that in the presence of Jesus, they are in the presence of Yahweh. The God who will go with them on the difficult journey when things seem completely out of order, when things are frustrating and they don't make sense. That's what Jesus wanted them to hear. But Mark shows that the disciples had not yet grasped the reality of God in their midst. They're still learning. They're still growing. And not once do you sense a tinge of Jesus' frustration. That's so important to understand. And the third thing that Jesus tells them after he tells them, 
take courage, ego, I, me, I am. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This whole conversation is happening as he's standing outside of the boat in the water. And Jesus is full of compassion despite their misread. Then Jesus climbs in the boat with them and immediately the wind dies down. Immediately the wind dies down. And the disciples again are amazed. But obviously their amazement is incomplete. For Mark says the disciples didn't really understand what had just happened hours before when the loaves had been multiplied with the crowds. Mark even describes the disciples as having hard hearts, calloused, not really getting it, missing the big picture. But in the midst of that, Jesus gives fear directions and he reveals his identity. Which brings me to my last point this morning, which is this. Jesus meets the needs of people who recognize him. Jesus meets the needs of people who recognize him. Let's look at verses 53, 54, 55, and 56 and see what what happens. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through throughout that whole region and they carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. So the boat lands at the shore with the disciples and Jesus, but did you catch where it landed? It lands in Gennesaret. That's not where Jesus told them to go. He told them to go to Bethsaida. We don't know if the wind blew them off course or what exactly is going on here. But what we do know, as soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized who Jesus was. And that the people throughout that whole region grabbed sick people, even if they were laying on mats, and they drug them to Jesus wherever they could track him down. And then we're told that Jesus' compassion is on full display. He isn't displaced by these, the needs of these people. He responds. So let me go through these five points again and and kind of bring some context to this. The first is, obedience to Jesus doesn't mean things will be easy. Obedience to Jesus doesn't mean things will be easy. When, When we and when you and I obey Jesus and things still seem to be completely out of control and you seem alone without Jesus, paddling against the wind, not seeming to go anywhere, be comforted. Jesus is watching and guiding the circumstances to reveal his true identity to you so that you will recognize the greater purposes of how you fit and what's going on in his kingdom. But that's really hard to pick up on when when we're in the midst of a storm. Number two, in the midst of people's struggles, Jesus sees and prays. When the stakes are high, Jesus spent intensive and comprehensive time in prayer, talking to his father about the circumstances. Listen to what Paul tells us in Roman, in Romans that Jesus is actively doing today. Here's his words, Romans 8, 34. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God 
and is also interceding for us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, standing in the gap for us even today, praying for us, talking to the Father about us, standing in the gap, interceding for us. And remember, Jesus didn't immediately respond to the disciples' plight. Evidently, it was more effective for Jesus to talk to the Father than it was for him to go out in the boat and rescue them right away. We ought to chew on that for a few minutes. My third point is that Jesus comes close in the midst of storms. Jesus didn't leave the disciples alone in their struggle. He came to them. They were in the dark, frustrated, and he knew exactly where they were, and he came to them. And he knows exactly where you are, and he will come to you also. Four, Jesus gives fear directions, and Jesus reveals his identity. Jesus gives you and I some great fear directions here, and he reveals his identity. He says, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. The same God of the Bible stories is your God too. And finally, Jesus meets the needs of people who recognize him. Which brings us to our point of personal application with God who is here among us this morning. Jesus knows you better than you even know yourself. He loves you more than you even love yourself. He's more compassionate than you could ever imagine. He knows your needs and the answers to your needs way better than you will ever understand. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come to deliver you from yourself and from your demise, is here with us this morning. It truly is a gospel of good news from God to us. I am. Mark concludes this chapter by showing us how people ran to Jesus for help with their needs. And this morning, I'd like to close by giving you an opportunity to also run to Jesus with your needs. Remember the boldness of Jairus, the synagogue ruler? Remember the tenacity of the woman with the issue of blood? Recognize that the great I am, Jesus the Son of God, is among us this morning. He is here and he is passing by, just like he was passing by with the disciples in this story in the night. Maybe, maybe, you just need to spend some time this morning interacting with Jesus and sharing how much you long to be with him and how you have, haven't been in that place. Maybe you're here this morning in the midst of a storm and you need Jesus to come close to you. Maybe you need the healing touch of Jesus. Maybe you need to surrender your, yourself, your very life to Jesus this morning. And I want to be able to create some space for us this morning to close and allow Jesus to do what he wants to do here. But this time and space, it's going to need us to work with God, to recognize him and to respond. I opened up this morning by saying, if you've come here frustrated, broken, confused, run down, you're in the right place. And I believe you really are in the right place. 
Jesus, who we just read about, is here with us. He wants to connect with you. Jesus meets the needs of people who recognize him. Bring your needs, your desires, your brokenness to him. He is with us through the power of his Holy Spirit. Take courage. I am is in our midst. Don't be afraid. And now now let me just close us in prayer. Jesus, we recognize you among us. And we now step out in faith to connect with you. Meet our needs, Jesus, as you met the needs of the people in Jesus' day. Amen.